Hello, friends. Thank you so much for being here. Great to see you, those who are live and those who are um, in the Zoom and those who are on the live stream. We are thrilled today to learn about this, uh, this very rich topic with Rabbi Chaim Schaffner, who is the rabbi of Kesher Israel, the Georgetown Synagogue in Washington, D.C. Previously, he served as rabbi of Base Abraham Congregation in St. Louis, Missouri, as rabbi of the Hillel at Washington University in St. Louis, and as the rabbi of India for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Uh, he has rabbinical ordination in MSW in social work and an MA in Jewish philosophy from Yeshiva University and trained as a psychotherapist at the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Schaffner is the author of the Everything Jewish Wedding Book and has published widely in an array of Jewish journals, periodicals, and books. Rav Chaim, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Boy, they'll read anything you give them. No, I'm kidding. Um, Thank you. No, it's really, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I have uh, watched through the Tzedek. I don't know if I've taught for you before, but I've certainly watched from afar, had lots of rabbinic interns have been involved. And uh, of course, um, you know, seen how uh, Reb Shmuley has uh, made an enormous impact on uh, on the world and on the environment. The, um, the topic uh, today, let me share my screen with you and I'll share a link. Uh, here's a link to the text. And I'll also share my screen with you. And this actually, I came across kind of, I don't want to say by accident, but um, I, and I don't know. I was, I was like, uh, you know, I, I grew up with Musser. I, I grew up in a lot of Haredi yeshivas. And so we used to learn Musser. But Musser was always the classic uh, Musser books. It was what, what one might call early to middle Musser. Um, it was Misil Sisharm, it was Archas Tzadikim. Um, you know, you read Archas Tzadikim, but some of it's pretty hard hitting. You know, if you, uh, you know, did a sin, you should fast for 40 days. He says that in many places. Um, and um, and there's a lot of wonderful things in all of those books. But what I hadn't really been exposed to when I had been in Musa Yeshivas was sort of later Musser. Um, and later Musser, of course, is much more about Gadluta Adam, the greatness of the human being. And um, the Altar von Slodka, is of course a, a well-known figure in uh, in the Muslim movement, Rabbi Nassim Finkel, and uh, and so I was, you know, I, I just started to sort of look at some of it, and 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 I can't remember if this is the first piece I looked at, but I read it and I was just so shocked at what was there because not only was it sort of you know extremely modern in the thinking, it and I, I first came across it a couple of years ago in kind of the midst of uh, of of um, Black Lives Matter movement. And, and when I read this, I was like, wow, that's what he's talking about. And, you know, what, whatever one's politics is, uh, he talks about things that one does not expect uh, to come out of uh, classical uh, Torah thought. Um, and, and so I, I found it to be relevant in a few ways. Number one, it was very much relevant to my work as a psychotherapist. because he, he, What he's talking about a lot is the unconscious. And uh, actually, I, I talked about this a little bit at a, at a conference at GW on um, on Judaism and psychotherapy, and uh, and and this relates a little bit to I think the question of to what extent was Freud and the notions of the unconscious. Maybe you know we we imagine that everybody who has an idea about the unconscious uh, you know gets it from Freud, but it may have worked the other way. You know, there's there's a lot of evidence that Freud had a tremendous amount of exposure to Judaism, much more than we realize, much more than he was willing to admit. Um, and, and you'll see some of that here. Uh, and also a sense of what is our responsibility 
uh, to others? What is our response? You know, we, we talk a lot in Orthodoxy, especially about what our responsibility is to other Jews who are like us. You know, so first of all, there's the question of what's our responsibility to Jews who are not like us? What's our responsibility to people who are not Jews? And um, and uh, you'll see uh, very quickly in the writings of Rabbi Nelson C. Finkel that uh, he sees it in an extremely wide way. Um, so we'll we'll uh, well what I'll do is I'll I've chosen three paragraphs and I'll kind of read them to you in Hebrew. Um, there is no translation. I've I translated the first paragraph on my own, um, and you'll see, it's right here under where it says Aret Safun. And um, the second paragraph is really a Gemara that he's quoting, which is a little bit further down on the page from Bamitzia. Some of you may recognize. Um, and so let's do the text, and then we'll look at some things that are relevant to it. Uh, I feel like it speaks. There's an idea, you know, one, the, the most central idea of Levinas, I think, is really resonates very much with what the altar says. Um, and then we'll look a little bit at something from Tiknan Han uh, that I think relates to it also. Okay, so he says. This piece is called, there's, it's, there's not that many pieces of Musser, I think. Maybe there's more from the altar, but uh, it's not that much that I found. Uh, you know, there's there's enough for a thin book. But um, this is on the question of chesed. And the fundamental question he's going to ask is, why does the Torah have to tell us um, to, uh, to do chesed? Uh, all of the things that are involved in the Torah's chesed, whether that's helping the donkey of your enemy, whether that is returning lost objects, whether that is caring for the widow and the orphan, whatever it is, lending money. Why does it have to tell you that? Wouldn't you know that from your own conscience? Now, that's interesting, you know, because a lot of times in Judaism, we often think, oh, there is no morality without Torah. But the altar seems to take for granted that we we could certainly have morality uh, without having the Torah. Um, besides, obviously, the Chazal, so you could learn it from the animals. So he says, Midazush shel chesed, this concept of chesed, Characteristic of Chesed. He says, You would know it from your intellect, even without the Torah commanding it to you. You have the human being has a sense of conscience, hopefully. So, why is the Torah to command you all these things about Chesed, about kindness? He says, The Chesed that the Torah is commanding us is totally different than the Chesed we would know from our own um, conscience and our own thinking. Because every person is obligated to feel the pain of the other, of their friend, of another person. In Yav Chalishuto, the person's downtroddenness, their weakness, and to work to, do, to, to make it better for them. To to resolve, to uh, elevate, to alleviate some of their pain. Lashiro, to make them wealthy, right? To take away their poverty. and to strengthen them. He says that's the general obligation that our conscience would give us, right? That seems obvious then. So what does the Torah command you above and beyond that? The Torah is commanding us that that's not enough. This is shocking. He says, you have to feel the pain of the other, which they themselves cannot feel. Why can't they feel it? Or why do they have it? Right? If, if, if they hurt their arm, they'll feel that. But there's other kinds of pain that they have 
and they don't know they have, that they feel and they don't know they feel, but they feel it. And they see us where they get it because of their situation, their specific, either their individual situation, their nurture, their individual situation they've been exposed to. Or because of the impact of the at, of the of the of the of the atmosphere that they have been brought up in, and we have an obligation to do good to them, even with regard to that. Because deep, deep within them, right? If it's a place that they don't know, it's obviously their unconscious, but it's real. But omek omko shalibo in the depths of the depths of their hearts, yeshisodulhargoshaschisaronze, they do feel it. That's what he says. There's a fundamental sense that they do feel it, even though they don't feel it consciously. She kishe yishtachrer miteva chanichucha. If they become free from the bonds of the way that they assume things to be, of the way that they've been uh, raised, the ways that they've been that they've been living, or from the intergenerational trauma that they have received, the intergenerational uh, pain that they have received from hundreds of years. It's unbelievable, right? He, I mean, he's writing this in the, in the late 19th century. Like, who's he writing about? You know, it's, it's, I was reading this two, three years ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, is he writing about the, like, is he on that, you know, is he on one side of the Black Lives Matter movement? Is that what's happening here? It's a wild. This depth of feeling, the Torah obligates us to tune into. Every Jew is obligated to feel this pain in others. And to work hard, to do good to others according to how much they need. Because these feelings, even these feelings that are so unconscious, these painful feelings are part of life. They're part of their life. They're real. And a person does feel them in the depths of their soul. And they want to address them. Even though they don't know they feel the pain, they do feel the pain and they want to address it. So let me at least uh, just sort of open it up for a moment. What, what's your, any, any thoughts, any questions? This is sort of, to me, this is shocking um, that uh, that that he's able to even think about such a thing. Yeah, Mona. So this is indeed amazing. I have several thoughts. One is, aside from calling it the unconscious, we know that people who have been traumatized carry their memories in their bodies. And that's mm. a lot of Russell van der Kolk's work. Yeah. Um, the body keeps the score. So that to me, that's what this partly reminds me of. Also, the intergenerational transmission of trauma, the intergenerational transmission of epigenetic changes yeah. due to trauma and stress. Um, and also, there's something about empathy, the neurobiology of empathy shows that it's the first step of empathy is that we feel in our body what the other person is feeling in their body, even before mm-hmm. we name it, which mm-hmm. again, this seems to be reflecting that. It's right. quite remarkable. 
Yeah, they talk about that a lot in um, interpersonal psychology, in which um, your feelings in, in the world of psychotherapy, your feelings as a therapist actually have started now in a lot of literature to count more in a certain sense than the feelings of the patient, because, it, not, you know, obviously you have to know that it's not just your feelings, but that um, what you feel is when two people are together, I think is what you're referring to, when two people are together, there's there's some kind of there's, there's some way that people mirror each other, right? This sort of mirroring gene or neuron and uh, what we, when, when, right. So that's interesting, right? In other words, maybe, because that's gonna be part of the question here is how do I, first of all, how do I do this? You know, how do I access this? And what do I do? Uh, let's say that I could feel the other's unconscious pain. How do I even address that? You know, what do I do? I mean, it's, uh, you know, because they're not, Assuming that I can actually have the ability to tune into this, which I don't know if we really can. Uh, I mean, he thinks we can. He thinks we're not only that; he thinks we're obligated to. That's interesting. You know, that I just want to add one more thing, which is yeah. um, it's really important in talking about this that we have humility, because mm -hmm. I may assume I know what you're feeling because of what I'm feeling, but there may yeah. be a cultural gap, there may be an interpersonal gap. So sure. I want to throw in a dose of humility. That's true. That's true. Right. In other words, and, and I think a lot of times we do hold back from getting involved, especially when there's race involved, because we're like, well, you know, I don't want to run the risk of, you know, being the white knight. And uh, but of course, you can err on the uh, on, on that side, too, you know, in which you don't get involved. Uh, yeah. OK, let's read a little bit more. It says, Anita Bamitzia. So he quotes Gemara Bamitzia that you may be familiar with. Ben Matya, you also wonder, by the way, to what extent is he talking about Jewish pain? You know, what is, I mean, if, you know, it's interesting, right? We don't talk that much. I mean, we do now post-Holocaust, but, you know, is the, you know, is the pain of, of, of our long history of persecution, how does that impact us? Uh, the story in Bab Metzia is, here it's talking about what you have to pay your workers. So how do you know how much you have to pay your workers uh, in terms of, and that used to be that people would get hired for a day. And as part of that, there would be, uh, day, there were day laborers. And so you would provide for them a salary, but also a meal. And the question is, what's your, if it's part of the salary situation, there's some obligation to what the meal has to include. So um, he says to his son, go and hire day workers. He went and he hired the workers and he, and he said, and, and there is a place where the Gemara there says, you know, whatever the custom is, that's what you supply for them. And that should be the obvious sort of nizik um, and uh, the obvious answer when it comes to monetary law. But he goes a step further, uh, Rabbi Yochan. He says, when the son came, he said, Bani, my son, it turns out he hired them and he didn't specify what kind of meal he was going to give them. Maybe the son thought he'd give them a regular meal. And he says, no, if you didn't specify, you have an unlimited obligation to them. Even if you'll give them the biggest meal in the world, like King Solomon, you will not have fulfilled your obligation. Why not? Now, you would think that his answer would be a kind of monetary answer. Well, why not? Because they can say, oh, you know, we think you promised us something greater. Now, the truth is they can't really because whatever the normative custom is, is going to be what's assumed. Assumptions are made in, in torts and in monetary law. But he says something different here. He says, look at their lineage. Look at who they are. Um, now, does that mean that Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov are so great, so we owe them something? Does that mean they're our brethren? What does that mean? It's an interesting question. 
um, say, so he says, rather, you better go and you better say to, you better specify what we're going to pay them or you're going to break the bank. Um, say to them, I'm hiring you, uh, um, that, that I'm only obligated to give you bread and, um, and lentils. I guess that was a normal meal. Now, these are workers who have never been wealthy. They're poor, the children of poor people. They, they're, they're, they're not used to being wealthy. They'd be happy with bread and water. So the altar's asking, you say, what are you talking about? They don't expect anything. They expect bread and water. It's all they're used to. You're telling me that you have an obligation to them, that you have to feed them like Solomon would feed them? He says, yes, they have a, they are dorish something. It's fascinating, his choice of word. I don't know if he read, I think Levinas is after him. But um, dorish means, uh, um, right, like a drusha. A drusha means uh, you derive one thing from another, right? Uh, uh, people are dorish tzion. We seek out. Um, drisha, who they are, creates an obligation, an ethical obligation. It seeks something. It, 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 requ- it creates a requirement. H- how much of a requirement? Enormous. Drisha, shikam, shukam, lakam. It's infinite. The obligation that the other, that I have, to, the, the stam, the, the given obligation that I have to the other, qua other, that they're dorish me many, their presence, their faith, as it were, uh, requires of me, draws from me, is dorish from me, seeks out from, you know, obligates me in, is, is unlimited. Because they're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They themselves are used to nothing. But they, everyone has a father and a mother. Everyone has grandparents. Everyone comes from somewhere. Everyone is a human being. Haim Yodeya, now maybe he's talking only about Jews here, I don't know. Haim Yodeya who hapoel midrishas nafshazos. Does this worker have any idea what we're even talking about here? The worker will be happy with bread and water. Low below. Marche godl mavdil This worker has no idea that he himself is doresh that his presence creates a sense of obligation that's unlimited. The Torah feels it. Very interesting turn of phrase. The Torah feels his sense of drisha, of, of how his being, uh, calls out in ethical obligation to us that's unlimited, that's infinite. Even though he can't feel it at all. He has no idea. He would be thrilled if he gave him bread and water. So therefore, if the child of Rabbi Yochanan had, had, um, had said what, you know, had not said what he's going to give them, um, uh, so then um, he, he would have to say, listen, here's all I'm going to give you. Now, now, this is not a monetary thing, right? On a monetary level, of course, the Gemara says, whatever the custom is to give workers, that's what you're obligated because of. No obligation qua money. There's no, there's no, there's no Nazikin obligation here to, um, in, in the world of torts and damages, to pay more than what's normal. There's some other obligation going on here. Right? And that, let me just skip down here to just the line from Levinas because it just so pops out. Right, uh, Levinas's famous idea about the the face opens 
the, primor the primordial discourse, whose first word is obligation, right? Levinas had this idea that just the, the, another human being, a human being is such, I mean, it's similar to the idea of the human being made in the image of God, but that just the presence of the human being creates an ethical obligation on others. Wow. Well, that's interesting because, you know, we're used to walking through an airport and it's just a conglomeration of faces, right? But the face uh, is what is, is metaphorically represents somehow the uniqueness of the human. The fact that every human being is unique creates a sense of moral obligation, not just monetary obligation. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying here, yes, in the world of Talmud, we have monetary obligations, but Rabbi Yochanan is making an interesting move here where he's taking this sort of, you know, sort of very modern ethical sensibility and saying um, you can actually conflate that with monetary, with real monetary obligation, uh, which is very surprising because is he serious? Is he not serious? Is he, would he, you know, if you said to him, are you, are you really obligated? Is this is this a din? Is this a law in in, in damages and in and in and in and in business law? You know, is this is this uh, um, is this uh, is this shulchan? You know, it, it's it's there's a conflation of ideas here that that he's bringing together, kind of um, ethics with 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 law. Um, but he does seem to be bridging that. I mean, it's I mean, to, 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 it's a radical thing. Um, but um, but he seems to be bringing it to Gemara. It's not the Gemara's bottom line, but um, but Rabbi Yochan ben Matya seemed to think that um, that Choshen uh, Mishpat and uh, and ethics are not necessarily separable, at least at least in this case. Okay, we do the third paragraph. Um, Gemara. The Gemara says, It says Avraham's meal actually was greater than Shlomo's, right? The, 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 the phrase, the meal of Solomon in its day, is always a turn of phrase that means, you know, the, 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 the epitome of the, of the royal meal. But he says, um, uh, uh, the altar says, actually, Avraham did more than Shlomo. The Gemara says that Abraham made three. Uh, animals, one for each of the guests, as uh, there was a great rabbi in St. Louis, Rabbi Abraham Gansi, who, uh, who uh, Phil will remember, and he was a great tzaddik from Europe, from the Grodin He was the rabbi of Beis Abraham um, for, for I became a rabbi there. And he used to emphasize, he said, you know, when Abraham saw those three people walking in the desert, not only did he not know their angels, he said, they weren't Jews. They weren't monotheists. Abraham was the only monotheist. They were polytheists. They were they were idolaters. That's who Abraham left God's presence to go and welcome. Right? That's so. Um, and what does he do? He doesn't just welcome them. He makes this incredible meal in, in the eyes of the Gemara. The, so the Gemara says, "How do you know what he made them?" So the Gemara says, "Well, he obviously would have made them the best food there is. What's the best food?" So Gemara says, "It's tongue in mustard." I guess it's where Jews get the deli idea from. I don't know, but. Uh, the, I, I don't know if I agree with this, but um, the Gemara says he must have made three. And the Gemara is interested in like how many animals did Avram make? So Gemara must be three because he must have given them a tongue and mustard. Um, so Ham said, Oneg Kazat, he totsa yeshara meomek, he staklus Why is Avram doing this? Right? The altar is bothered by why does Avram go this far according to the Gemara? So he says, he says, that's, that's, it's not the ceiling, that's the floor. 
right? Because he says, well, how does Avraham know this? Avraham had an ability to see the depths of people's souls. And if you can see the depths of a person's soul, even if they're not hungry, like what are you seeing, right? Doesn't mean the angels were in pain. What does he see in the depths of their soul? Humanness. Humanness begs something of us. It requires something of us. How much? Infinite. Nefesh zu this soul which came on from on high, the soul is made in the image of God. And Kate's la there is no end to its value. And the depths of its drisha, the depths of its drisha is such a good word. I have a hard time translating it into English, right? It 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 it, 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 it inquires and requires of me. Uh, it, it a claim it, claim would that work? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it has a claim. The the person's soul and presence as a human has a claim on me, an, an ethical claim. Yeah, nefesh zush because it comes to me. Therefore, we we can't even figure out the limits. We have to find the depths of the depths and reveal them. This is fascinating. We have an obligation to shake off the thick dust that has accumulated on that person, on others. From the different situations a person has been has experienced. Everybody lives in through situations. If you've lived through situations that are difficult, if you've lived in a world that impacts you negatively, there's this dust that accumulates on you. And it is the obligation of the other. How does dust accumulate? Dust accumulates from the atmosphere. It's not something that's put upon you. You live there, you grew up in, you know, X place. It's this cultural... Uh, reality in the air that settles on you and weighs you down. And we have an obligation to shake that dust off of the other um, by treating them like kings. Um, and he says, this is a big, this is a big lot of work. To reveal these hidden things in the other. It's only the great pedagogue who could reveal hidden things. Like It's interesting that he chooses, I think it means pedagogy. Why does he choose pedagogy? It means a teacher, right? Is he talking about therapy? Is he talking about, it's an interesting question, by the way, um, living when he lived, a little bit early, does he know anything about psychoanalysis? Uh, we know that the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe was a patient of Freud's. He was analyzed by Freud in Vienna. And we have notes in Yiddish that he kept. Um, so it, it certainly made its way in the Jewish world, but that's a little bit later. Um, so what, you know, what is this, is he talking about having to educate the person? If, if it's a way of educating, it's educating by treating them like a king. Shehema lif'amim, this reminds us also a little bit, that's a little bit of the story of Hillel running before the horse, uh, but that was a rich man who had become poor, and you're obligated to give them what they're used to. But here, this is a poor person, who's always been poor, uh, a person who has suffered trauma of generations, but their soul is what creates the obligation. And he says, this can be intergenerational, uh, intergenerational inherited difficulty. 
Moshe Bemis, but one who sees the other as they truly are. And they treat them according to the greatness that they really deserve. In Kate Sugvu Lamasa Chesed, there is no limit to that Chesed. That the other person's soul requires of us, claims upon us, obligates us. So this is uh, on a practical level, you know, this might scare you away from you know having people for Shabbos meals. I don't know. Uh, you know, what is it, what does it mean to live in this, you know, in, in a certain sense, he's painting a picture that isn't doable, right? I mean, what, what does it mean? Maybe you can feel this way about us. Maybe that's vital. You know, I don't know if you're really going to treat everybody this way, there's not going to be enough to go around, right? Uh, but, but maybe, maybe even if it's not, maybe halakha kicks in on a practical level and you give one fifth, and you give what's normal, and you give, uh, we have a lot of halakhas, we have a lot of Jewish law about what you're obligated to give to the poor. They have to have two meals, they have to have, you know, from this kind of fund and that kind of fund. Um, so there's a halakhic level to living our life, right? But he's saying on a muster level, right? And they both maybe coexist. And it's just, I don't think it means that you have to, you know, spend all of your money on every poor person. I mean, that wouldn't work. Um, so um, I think the halakhic level will kick in on a in a practical way, but it doesn't free us from uh, Musar understanding here of how to think about and how to feel about others. Got some questions here. The um, I wanted to take a look at. Uh, Came across this line from Rabbi Berman. Uh, I think, oh, I think this was in a podcast actually during Black Lives Matter. They took the cumulative effect of a thousand indignities, and um, right, we sometimes that's that's the altar's talking about that also. In other words, you can have subtle. Eh, I'm not, I'm not by my nature somebody who, who always buys these things, but um, but 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 that's what I think the altar's talking about is this sort of world of microaggressions. Again, I'm a little bit wary of even the term, but um, but but the uh, this idea that you can live in a world in which you're being impacted in ways that you don't see, and that gives you pain, right? That That is sort of what we mean, uh, you know, about the thousands of indignities that, that, that people can inherit. So this was a short piece from, uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, he, he, I can't remember why I was reading this. I think he died uh, about a year or two ago. And when he died, I started reading this book. And, um, and that was when I put this in here. And it felt uh, relevant to it. Any thoughts before we, before we do this? I mean, does, does this feel, um, you know, kind of too much? Does it resonate? Does it, does it, does it seem, you know, way too beyond halacha? Does it seem too undoable? Does it seem relevant? What other questions did I have? I have a few questions here. Uh, I think Just all there. of it. Yeah, what? I think it feels all of that, but uh, also overwhelming um, in that uh, it feels like it relates to, to the paraduma in some way as well of uh, what it means to, to, to receive some and recognize the, uh, that the, the tumat mate and how that affects, uh, 
the the therapist, I guess, uh, and mm. where the boundaries are with that, and how how we can recognize it without without absorbing it, I guess, is one of the things I, I struggle with uh, and mm-hmm. in this work. But I mean, it's right. it, it's both incredibly uh, encouraging and and incredibly overwhelming at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting the paraduma, right? Of course, that's this week. But um, the paraduma, in the process of making somebody pure, you become impure. And that's very interesting. You know, are you out right there? There's a difference of opinion sort of among, you know, people in the religious world. To what extent should you get involved with other Jews? Right. Should you try and have be good? You know, should you teach Jews who don't know very much? Should you go to places where there isn't much Judaism? Um, You know, you're going to become, quote, impure. Well, or, or no, or maybe that's precisely what you're supposed to do. Right. You know, that's why is it that, you know, God who made all these rules as the Gemara says, you know, uh, there's no reason for Tum and Tara. It's just a decree of the king. You know, so why does why why does the Torah have a sense that that the one who purifies becomes impure? That's interesting, uh, right? Now that would in this context, it would ask the question of to what extent um, do I have to compromise my own um, security? Uh, you know, does this obligate me to give a lot more tzedakah than I would have given? Um, what does it mean to how do I even tune into the pain of the other? Is that even possible? So, um, hi, hey, Phil, how are you? Um, it's uh, it, it's beautiful and very, very uh, inspiring. And uh, uh I, I, I guess the question uh is is as you brought up is you know, how far to take this how far to take what the author is uh is talking about how far to apply it uh the examples he brings obviously in the kumara is, is jews to, is, is is talking you know the both the poem and the uh and the uh the balabite are all are all jews and i think the you know the uh there's always this uh, every every time there's an attempt to take texts like these and to apply them to outs out you know to the the larger the larger you know community outside the Jewish world. There's this backlash that says that's ridiculous. You can see this is only talking about uh, this is only talking about he's only talking about 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 Jews here, um, and you know. So I I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts just on sort of just you know uh, uh, just what what is there anything in the text particularly in the first paragraph before he gets to the Gemara that gives you, you know, a sense of, of what you know, that this might be talking to to a broader audience but more but then I also how do we address this backlash of, of people talking about uh, of, of the ability of the how do we use texts that talk about Jews you know Jews Jews in vis-a-vis Jews and applying that to a uh, to a broader context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will say that the first paragraph, uh, it's true. The second paragraph, he quotes the Gemara, which is talking about B'nai Avram Yaakov. But the first paragraph, and maybe everybody has their own Avram Yaakov, I don't know. But um, 
the uh, the first paragraph seems to me to be talking specifically. I think you could even read it as talking about non-Jews specifically, right? Because are the Jews the one with the with the you know the cultural inherited uh, you know the sviva that they don't recognize and the inherited trauma they don't recognize? Is that is that us? I mean, I, I don't. My first glance at this was that he isn't talking about us. He's talking mm-hmm. about someone else. You know. Uh, he doesn't seem, he certainly doesn't mention the word, you know, Jewish or Torah or anything. He doesn't right. mention Yaakov. Um, like who is he talking about is a great question. Um, right, he sees, Kolish Yisrael Chayv Lahar Gishota. The obligation is on the Jew. Now, maybe he doesn't, I don't know, does he think other people are not capable of tuning into the unconscious pain that people have. Maybe only Jews can do that. But but he doesn't say anything about the people feeling the pain being Jews. Uh, so I've got a question, but I see Mona's got her hand up. So Mona, if you want to jump in first. Yeah. Here, um, I, I, this is again, very powerful. I think that we have a, a tendency to um, protect ourselves from the pain of others, including others who are different from us. And this is really a corrective text as I read it that we do need to attend in that way. Now, the the question was raised earlier by someone about therapy, but in general, I would say, the question is that you can get so overwhelmed with the deep pain of the other that they're not even able to articulate that you just fall apart yourself. And of course, there's this, this, you know, well-known phenomenon of therapists. I forget the the technical term for it, but it's basically, we we get injured by, by witnessing too much pain. Uh, and so we need to have our own boundaries. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about Martin Buber in, in two ways here. Buber talks about the I-thou relationship in which the person swings boldly into the experience of the other. And then Buber says in his own more poetic language, but without losing ourself in the process. Mm. Buber is attuned to the boundary that's crucial in order for us to swing into the experience of the other. Mm-hmm. And the other Buber quote that I'm thinking about is when Buber talks about pedagogy, he talks about the teacher who looks at the at the student and just over the student's head, he can see who that student could become. And um, then Buber facilitates that development of that student, oh, which I think is also really interesting so, so that the teacher can see what the student may not be able to see. Although yeah. again, there could be damage in that if, they, if, the, if the teacher is projecting stuff onto the student. But that whole notion of how do we boldly go into places of pain of the other without uh, collapsing or overwhelming ourselves or without being arrogant and insensitive to the fact that we're projecting onto others, I think is, is really relevant to this. this yeah. Discussion. Yeah. Well, if there's no I, there's also no thou. Right. You know, if you lose the I. Interesting. I wonder if, I, I mean, I do in my own mind wonder who he could have read, who he did read, you know, could he have read Buber? Now, it's hard to know when exactly each of these pieces was written. I don't think we know. Um, but um, it's possible, certainly, if this had been written. Uh, when was I in there written? It was like... Uh, 1923. Yeah, so I don't know. The ideas are certainly floating around before, before uh, that's what's out there in the world. Certainly Freud is already doing work. Um, yeah, that's a good question to what extent. It's funny, for me, I, I, I don't know. I, I just... Uh, I don't find often that I'm, you know, unless I'm sitting with a patient, I don't find that I'm able, you know, I don't know, the person on the street, the person in need, 
I mean, I can, you know, a homeless person, you know, I can, I can talk to them and I can serve them lunch and I can give them some money, but, um, and I can be attentive. Um, well, the regular folks, I don't know, can I attend to the unconscious pain that they feel? I don't know if I can do that. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't even know how. Um, although I'm very glad that there's a person who looks like this that says it. That that's what I, I don't. I'm not sure we can do this. But the idea that that the altar said this and he has a long beard and he's from Europe, I think that's great. That sounds crazy, but uh, you know, it's like the idea that this exists in Judaism. I think very important. Um, but but I don't know, right? Doesn't it, this is not the halacha? Because I don't know. You know, how do we? When do we do this? How do we do this? Um, where does it come into play? Maybe it doesn't come into play with every person we meet. Maybe, maybe there is one person. You know, I guess there are times, right, when we are kind. You know what I find in, in a communal context, there are certain times there are people who are difficult, and they will often get ignored in a communal con in a community um, because they're difficult. But a smart, you know, person or a smart rabbi knows that they're difficult because of pain that they experience inside. And therefore, you go out of your way, even though they're not the easiest people to be nice to. You go out of your way to be nice to them and to include them, um, you know. And it feels like an act of chesed, um, but you know they can't necessarily articulate that because they have defenses and they. Um, but but you know that what they need is not to be rejected. What they need is to be included, you know, precisely because of the difficulties that they have probably faced and can't articulate, and 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 that 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 and that. That itself is what probably keeps them from having the most robust social lives. Uh, so I, th I think it does it does play itself out in many communities. If a community can train itself culturally to really be welcoming, not just in in, in word but in practice, um, it can it can attend, you know, not always consciously, but it can as a community. Uh, my community in St. Louis was like this. You know, it can as a community attend to those who have no place. Uh, because it's a place that um, is is attuned to people's pain. Rabbi, it's it's yeah. so interesting to bring up intergenerational pain and cultural hurt in a in a social justice context in a Musar context because I'm so used to dealing engaging it through kind of a, the personal healing sense, the communal mm -hmm. healing sense, and um, in thinking about those two dimensions, the side of kind of the ethical towards the other. And the personal in and communal in terms of healing, I feel like the latter has really kind of dominated that space. And I would never dismiss that in terms of being creating a culture of entitlement or kind of a self-absorption, -absor kind of an obsession with personal and, coll and collective healing. But I do just wonder which ought to be more primary, um, you know, in this conversation. And the easy answer was, well, both. And they're connected because my you own- You mean the cultural or the individual? To being yeah yeah my my own personal and collective healing and this kind of musar ethical response to the other, uh, but th but that feels a little bit over overly demanding and I wonder like what do we want to put on the forefront? Is it that we all have intergenerational pain and cultural hurt and have an imperative to work through that, um, lest we burn others through it, or is it more really starting with the other instead of the self, and that we need to be in that societal realm where we are you know, immersed in responding to others. Does that, is that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
And and what does it mean on a practical level? You know, does it does it mean uh, I don't know? Does it mean reparations for African Americans? Does it mean uh, does it mean a one state solution in Israel in which it's in which it's not a Jewish state? Does it mean what does it? Mean? I don't know. You know, this could be taken very far. But also, but I also wonder: does it is there a risk of diminishing the agency of the other by being like uh -huh. I'm not talking to a reasonable person? I'm talking by someone driven by their unconscious hurts. And like, you can't even have a conversation with this person. Everything's going to trigger them based on unconscious hurts. Like, what's the point where we, we move this person from a reasonable person of agency into like some just like ball of, of mess who doesn't even know what they're saying or doing? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess relevant to that is a question of what would the altar say about halacha? No, is would the altar say, you're not obligated to do this. We have halacha. You know, we know how much tzedakah to give. We know what, what our obligations are. Um, you know, this this has to coexist with that, but, you know, or or I don't know, or or is this just for individuals or is this once in a while or I don't know. But uh, yeah, you know, if all we had was was Musr, I don't think you could live that life. Uh, the halacha gives us, I guess. But together, right, these kinds of ideas, along with halacha, you can live a practical life, but also infuse it with um, with, with a certain kind of depth. I'd it's like to yeah. ask if, if it's okay yeah, about the self-healing or community healing versus being there for the other. I think they're very much intertwined. I think when we're carrying old intergenerational wounds that have not been healed, we're more likely to do damage to the other uh, in the, in the form of revenge, et cetera. And um, we, we don't have to look far these days to see what's going on. But I would say one of the books that's very beautiful on this topic, and I think Shmuley, you hosted her, is Tirits of Firestone's Wounds into Wisdom, where she looks at healing intergenerational trauma in a way that doesn't lead to revenge for other people, but really allows for opening the soul. And when you do heal your own wounds in a way that opens you to the other, I think that's real healing. Hmm. So I don't think it's either or, I think they're connected. I mean, I wonder if there's a way that, you know, that the altar's saying you tune into their pain. He's saying that you, that creates an obligation on you, but I guess you could say, right, the pedagogical side, which he mentions, is interesting. You know, is there a kind of education that we do for others, and then they run with the ball? All right, well, let me, uh, I'll finish with this piece. Um, this is a meditation on compassion. Love is a mind that brings peace, joy, and happiness to another person. Compassion is a mind that removes the suffering that is present in the other. We all have seeds of love and compassion in our minds, and we can develop these fine, wonderful sources of energy. We can nurture the unconditional love that does not expect anything in return, if it does not lead to anxiety and sorrow. It's a, it's a, it's a non-transactional love. Um, now, obviously, he's not talking about the Torah commanding it. He's talking about you can find it in yourself. Uh, the altar didn't seem to think you could find it in yourself. He thinks you need the Torah for that. The essence of love and compassion is understanding. The ability to recognize the physical, material, and psychological suffering of others. To put ourselves inside the skin of the other. Stand in the other's place. We go inside their body feelings and mental formations and witness for ourselves their suffering. So that's interesting. 
shallow right nodes, you will feel their pain and therefore address it. Shallow observation as an outsider is not enough to see their suffering. How do you feel the pain of the other? You must become one with the object of our observation. Obviously, you only see them from the outside, but he says, no, you could do more than that. You could, you could tune into it. When we are in contact with another suffering, a feeling of compassion is born in us. This is a little bit of what Mon was speaking of before. Compassion literally means to suffer with. We begin by choosing as the object of our meditation, someone who's undergoing physical or material suffering, someone who's weak or ill, poor or oppressed, has no protection. This kind of suffering is easy for us to see. After that, we can practice being in contact with more subtle forms of suffering. Sometimes the other person does not seem to be suffering at all, but we may notice that he has sorrows which have left their marks in hidden ways. This is the same idea as the altar. People with more than enough material comforts also suffer. We look deeply at the person who is the object of our meditation on compassion, both during sitting meditation and when you're actually in contact with them, right? So part of this isn't even happening with the other person. We must allow enough time to be really in deep contact with the suffering to observe him until the compassion arises and penetrates our being. So he, he has a practical way of kind of doing this. And obviously believes that you can totally feel the pain of the other through uh, meditation on their on themselves with compassion. And it sounds like part of this practice isn't even with the other person. And that, that's an interesting meditation to do. Pick somebody and meditate on their pain. Not as good as watching Netflix. But... It reminds me of Rabbi Nachman's uh, looking at the good points and, and actualizing those without even interacting yeah. with them. Yeah, that's right. By judging them favorably changes them. I, I keep thinking in my mind um, in the beginning when you talked about like stepping in and feeling folks, I, I wonder if like that's moving us from sympathy to empathy and where we're like moving past just like feeling sympathy for somebody, but truly feeling empathy for the situations of other folks. I, mm -hmm. I'm really holding that in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe you begin from one place and you're deeper deep into another plane. By, uh, and he would say, you can use meditation for that. Focusing in on it will do it. Why? Because you are also human. You know what it means to feel those things. Well, uh, thank you all. I, I have not figured out how to really, you know, integrate this into one's everyday life. Um, but I think, you know, knowing it and going back to it periodically can help. Um, and maybe, the, maybe, maybe this idea of meditating on it can uh, be helpful. Beautiful. Uh, Rav Chaim, thank you so much for this deep Torah and a lot to think about and uh, wrestle with you. Pleasure. As we think about intertwining our work of therapy with Musar, with social justice and living in a messy world um, that we're all trying to navigate and bring healing to. So this is very powerful. Thank you all so much for joining us and many blessings as we lead towards, me. lead towards Pesach and work towards redemption together. God bless. Amen. Have a good day. Thank you all.